0: Westminster Confession of Faith, Chapter 16, of Good Works, Paragraphs 5, 6, and 7. We cannot by our best works merit pardon of sin or eternal life at the hand of God, by reason of the great disproportion that is between them and the glory to come, and the infinite distance that is between us and God, whom by them we can neither profit nor satisfy for the debt of our former sins. But when we have done all we can, we have done but our duty, and are unprofitable servants. And because, as they are good, they proceed from his Spirit, and as they are wrought by us, they are defiled and mixed with so much weakness and imperfection that they cannot endure the severity of God's judgment. Paragraph 6 Yet notwithstanding, the persons of believers being accepted through Christ, their good works also are accepted in him. Not as though they were in this life wholly unblamable and unreprovable in God's sight, but that he, looking upon them in his Son, is pleased to accept and reward that which is sincere, although accompanied with many weaknesses and imperfections. Paragraph 7 works done by unregenerate men, although for the matter of them they may be things which God commands and are of good use both to themselves and others. Yet because they proceed not from a heart purified by faith, nor are done in a right manner according to the word, nor to a right end the glory of God, they are therefore sinful and cannot please God or make a man meet to receive grace from God and yet their neglect of them is more sinful and displeasing unto God. As we finish our look today at chapter 16 of the Westminster Confession, we remind ourselves where we have already come from. We assert once more, because it cannot be repeated too often, that we are saved, justified, declared righteous in God's sight, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Good works do not save, and good works do not merit justification. However, this saving faith, although it stands alone in relation to our justification, is never alone. True saving faith will always result in good works in the life of the believer. And what are good works? Good works are the things that are commanded by God in His Word alone, and we do not have to be bound by the expectations or demands of men who have decided what they believe is good outside of the Word of God. Good works are an evidence of a true and lively faith, and good works have a good purpose. They strengthen our assurance, they build up and edify our brothers and sisters, they adorn the gospel message, and they challenge outsiders. Good works come because the Holy Spirit has worked in us, and yet we are not to be lazy saying that we will only do good things if the Spirit demands. We are to attend to the ordinary means of grace, and we are to follow God in obedience. And finally, we have heard that we are to keep our eyes not on ourselves or others, but on Jesus Christ, as even the most obedient believer will always fall short. And this last point is of vital importance. You see, works can often become a snare. Many around us believe that we will be saved by our works, and others think that they have reason to boast because they are so much better and do so many more good things than everyone else. If we have been snared by this thinking, then paragraph 5 humbles us and reminds us that we cannot be saved by our works. Even our best works cannot merit pardon of sin or eternal life at the hand of God we cannot save ourselves, we cannot work our way into God's good books, we will not work our way into heaven. It is as Paul says in Romans 3 and verse 20, for by works of the law no human being will be justified in God's sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. As this paragraph continues, the Westminster Divines show us why we are fools if we believe that our works can save. By works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight. For reason of the great disproportion, say the Westminster divines, that is between our works and the glory to come, and also the infinite distance that is between us and God, whom by them we can neither profit nor satisfy for the debt of our former sins. To make this teaching plain, how could we ever believe our good works could merit the glory of eternal life? My brothers and sisters, even today we cannot imagine what heaven is going to be like. Certainly we've got an image and certainly the word is not silent on it, but we cannot truly imagine the size and the scale and the glory of that which is going to be revealed. How could we ever believe that our good works would merit heaven? And how could we ever believe that our good works could ever pay back God? that could satisfy the debt of our former sins or, or give God some sort of profit. No, there is a massive and great disproportion between our good works and the glory to come and between our good works and the God whom we serve. We often are guilty of trying to narrow the distance between ourselves and God. We like to imagine God as just a little bit better than we are, some sort of greater human, if you like and therefore he will be pleased with whatever we offer, and he will be pleased with whatever good works that we do. In fact, sometimes we even imagine standing before him and telling him straight that he will accept us because we are so good. But my friends, there is a great and huge disproportion between who we are and the works that we do and who our God is. He is beyond us. He is not like us. He is thrice holy. He is perfect in all his ways. And we can never ever believe that we can pay the debt we owe him for our sins or narrow the gap that is between us and the glory to come. In Job 22 and verse 2, the question is asked, can a man be profitable to God? In verse 3, is it any pleasure to the Almighty if you are in the right or is it gain to him If you make your ways blameless? And the answer is, of course, not. He is not lacking in any way. It is impossible for us to somehow fulfil his desires or to meet his needs or to pay him back. Our good works will not merit eternal life, and our good works will not fill the great chasm and the great gap that exists between us and a holy God. Paul puts it this way in Romans 8 and verse 18 that he considered the sufferings of this present time were not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. This glory is indeed glorious. And if we ever think that our good works could somehow merit this glory to come, then we kid ourselves. It is by grace that we have been saved through faith. Ephesians 2 and verse 8. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Our best works cannot merit pardon of sin or eternal life, because there is a great disproportion between them and the glory to come, and an infinite distance between us and this thrice holy God. We cannot profit him. We cannot pay back the debt that we owe him for our former sins. Our good works do not get this job done. My friends, this point cannot be stressed enough. And it cannot ever be said that we have laboured this point. There are still so many people that I meet who believe the exact opposite of this teaching that our good works will somehow please a God who is just slightly different from us. We could never be further from the truth. And so, as the Westminster Divines continue in this paragraph, they remind us that even when we have done all we can, we have still done but our duty and are still just unprofitable servants. The Lord reminds us of that in Luke's Gospel, chapter 17 and verse 10. When you have done all that you were commanded, say, We are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. I'm reminded of the football team Manchester United, who famously do not pay their players any bonus for winning. The thinking goes that why should you get paid extra for doing what you should be doing anyway? It would be like me coming home as a father with food for my daughters and deciding that my actions were worthy of all praise. No, I'm only doing what is my duty. And so this is how we as believers see our good works, not meriting heaven, not meriting God's favor, not closing a gap between us and the Lord, but we are only doing our duty and are still unprofitable, failing to do much that we should already be doing. But some might argue, Scott, our good works flow from the Holy Spirit. We said that last time out, that without the Spirit's influence, none of us would do any good. The Spirit must work in us. He must transform us, taking us from death into life. And he renews us and produces fruit in us. And so the argument might be, well, Scott, surely everything we do is somehow made better because it is of God and of the Holy Spirit. The divines agree. Our good works are indeed good, they say, because they proceed from his spirit. We see this in Galatians 5 and 22 and 23. The fruit of the spirit, says Paul, is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness, gentleness, self-control and against such things there is no law. And so immediately we hear this and think, there's the answer. Whatever we do is good and wonderful and right because it flows from the Holy Spirit. And whilst this is true, the Westminster Divines end paragraph 5 by again humbling us and reminding us of our weakness. Our good works are good because they proceed from God's Spirit. But as they are worked by us, say the Divines, they are defiled and mixed with so much weakness and imperfection that they cannot endure the severity of God's judgment. And so, as we work our good works, we defile them and mix them with our weakness. All our righteous deeds, we read in Isaiah 64 and verse 6, are like a polluted garment. And Paul writing in Galatians 5 and verse 17 and then Romans 7, 15 and 18 reminds us that even in the life of a believer, there is a constant war going on. The desires of the flesh, he says in Galatians, are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Romans 7. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Our good works flow from the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, but even as they are worked, even on our best day, they are defiled and mixed with our weakness." Our good works give us no reason to boast, either in this life or in the next. So far, so humbling. The Westminster Divines take us to the woodshed in paragraph 5 and remind us that we have absolutely nothing to boast about. But as they begin in paragraph 6, they remind us of the grace of God. The first line of paragraph 6 tells us, Yet notwithstanding the persons of believers being accepted through Christ, their good works also are accepted in him. In plain terms, because we are in Christ by faith, our good works, as imperfect as they are, are acceptable to God in Christ. We see a biblical example of this in the lives of Cain and Abel. In Genesis 4 and verse 4, we read that Abel brought to the Lord The firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions, and the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. We know the story. Cain's offering had no regard from the Lord, and Cain ended up killing his brother. How are we to explain this? Perhaps Abel's offering was somehow better. It was a greater quality. Maybe Abel really meant it and Cain didn't. Perhaps Abel came working really hard, which impressed the Lord. But none of this is true. We find the answer to this conundrum in Hebrews 11 and verse 4. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. The Lord did not accept Abel's offering because he worked harder than his brother. Abel's offering was accepted and Cain's rejected because Abel came by faith and was in Christ, whereas Cain was not. My friends, we understand that doing good works is us simply doing our duty. And we know and believe that even in our best day, our good works fall far short of what God requires. But we also know that because we are in Christ by faith, then our good works are acceptable in the sight of a holy God. The divines tell us and remind us that they are not in this life wholly unblameable and unreprovable in God's sight. We have already heard, as we have worked through this chapter, that our works are defiled and mixed with our weakness as they are worked by us. We are not perfect and our works are certainly not perfect. As we read in Psalm 143 and verse 2, no one living is righteous before the Lord. Our works are not wholly unblamable and unreprovable in God's sight, but he looks upon them in his Son and is therefore pleased to accept and reward that which is sincere, although accompanied with many weaknesses and imperfections. My friends, I am so thankful for the Westminster Confession of Faith. It is so entirely Practical as it speaks into our lives. And as we consider these things today, we are removed from boasting. We understand what our works are before a holy God, and so we have no room to boast. But just as we have no room to boast, even in our weakness, we have no room to despair. Because we are in Christ, the good works that we do, though mixed by weakness, are acceptable in God's sight. When our day is done, we will hear the words, Well done, good and faithful servant. And we read in both Matthew twenty-five, twenty-one, and 23, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. God is not unjust so as to overlook our work and the love that we have shown for his name in serving the saints, as we have read in Hebrews 6 and verse 10. And so, my brothers and sisters, today's teaching should not cause us to flee from God into a life of despair, believing that we can never please him because we are full of weakness. Instead, we are to remember to always do our duty, to be zealous for good works, never boasting in them, but resting in Christ, knowing that just as we have received him by faith in the gospel, so too our good works, produced in us by the Holy Spirit and worked by us in this life, will be acceptable in the sight of God. The Lord will receive our good works by faith and could no more reject them than he could reject Jesus. So we have been humbled and encouraged today, and I hope as we close that we can also say we have been taught. You and I can make a simple observation today, and that is to say that it isn't just Christians who will do good works in this life. The Westminster Divines allow for that in the final paragraph of this chapter. They say that even unregenerate men can do good works that are both of good use to themselves and indeed others. Even the unregenerate can do the things sometimes which God commands. our observations of this reality in life shouldn't surprise us. We see it throughout the pages of the scriptures. Neither King Jehu or King Ahab could honestly be said to be friends of the Lord, and yet in second kings ten and thirty and thirty-one, the Lord rewards Jehu because he has put pay to the prophets of Baal, and in first kings twenty- one 27 and 29, the Lord makes it clear that even Ahab has humbled himself before the Lord, and because he has done this, the Lord promises that he will not bring the disaster upon him as he has said that he would. And Paul writes in Philippians chapter 1 that there are some who preach Christ from envy and rivalry. Paul delights in this, that Christ is proclaimed, even though the motives of these individuals is far from godly. Even unregenerate, unsaved men and women can do good things for themselves and for others, things that God has commanded in His Word. But the difference between these unregenerate men and women and the lives of believers is that the works that these men and women do will not be acceptable in the sight of God. For, as the Westminster Divine state here, These works do not proceed from a heart that has been purified by faith. We have already made this clear. The Christians' works, even though they are done in weakness, will be acceptable in God's sight because they flow from hearts that have been transformed, hearts that have received and rested in Christ by faith. But the works of unregenerate men and women do not have this faith. We've already touched today upon the difference between Cain and Abel in Genesis 4 and explained for us in Hebrews 11. Abel's sacrifice was acceptable in God's sight because it came by faith. Cain's was rejected because it lacked faith. And as we read in Hebrews 11 and verse 6, Without faith it is impossible to please God. These works that unregenerate men and women do, do not come from faith and they are not done in accordance with the Word of God. The Divines put it this way, they are not done in a right manner according to the Word. Our very first paragraph in this chapter made that clear, that we as Christians are only bound to do the things commanded by God in His Word, and not the things commanded by the traditions or superstitions of men. The good works of the unregenerate man are done lacking faith, And are done in opposition to the word of God. And indeed they are not done to the right end. They are not done for the glory of God as the Westminster Divines outline here. Jesus teaches on this in Matthew 6. He speaks of the individuals who give to the poor and then trumpet it in verse 2. And he speaks of those who pray like the hypocrites who pray to be seen in verse 5. And he speaks of those who fast in verse 16 who look gloomy and disfigure their faces, so that everyone can see that they are fasting. These works were not done for the glory of God, but for the glory of man, and therefore they are works that would be rejected. And so with all these deficiencies, a lack of faith, works done not in accordance with the word, and works done not to the glory of God, these works done by unregenerate men, even though they are good use both to themselves and others, are counted as sinful in God's sight, they cannot please the Lord or make a man meet to receive grace from God. It is, as we read in Haggai chapter 2 and verse 14, everything that these individuals offer is considered unclean. And in Titus 1 and verse 15, To the pure all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. And so the unregenerate man listening to this teaching today might consider, well, what is the point in doing any good things at all? If the Lord has no regard for my works, if the Lord will not save me because of them, if the Lord is not going to somehow let me into heaven through the back door, what is the point of doing any good whatsoever? The divines show us the point. They make it clear that these works have no regard in the sight of God, and yet their neglect of these works is even more sinful and displeasing unto God. And so the unsaved man who does not honour his parents as God requires is even worse off than the unsaved man who does honour his parents. In Matthew 25, we meet Jesus on the throne of judgment, and he will say to those on his left, "'Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels.'" You did not do it to me. And in Matthew 23 and verse 23, Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. There's an old saying that states, You're damned if you do, and damned if you don't. A more biblically accurate statement would be, without faith, you are damned if you do, and even more worse off if you don't. The unregenerate man would do well today to consider the question, who then can be saved? If the sinner cannot please God by doing the things commanded in his word, and if the sinner makes it worse by disobeying God's commandments, who then can be saved? Thankfully, we know the answer. This is not a conundrum at all. The Christian's good works are only acceptable in God's sight through faith in Christ, and the unregenerate individual is only acceptable in God's sight through faith in Christ. Do you see this common denominator? Do you see how the gospel answers all of these conundrums? What must we do to be doing the works of God? We believe in the one whom he has sent. Here are some questions for you to consider. Question 1. How would you counsel someone who believes that their good works will save them? Question 2. How should a Christian view his or her good works? Question 3. If paragraph 5 keeps us from boasting, then paragraph 6 keeps us from despair. How? Question 4. What is lacking from the good works carried out by unregenerate men and women? And question 5. True or false, when it comes to good works, you're damned if you do, and you're damned if you don't. That's all for today. As always, my name is Scott Woodburn, and until next time, this we confess.